In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Before Abraham was called away from his father's house and the gods of his ancestors to go to the land that God would show him, all the people on the earth had gathered together in one place, speaking one language. And all the people said to themselves, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Though God had given humanity a calling in Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, humanity had rejected this calling and desired instead to make themselves famous, to build a great tower that would stretch into heaven, as though by their own efforts they could transcend the limitations of this plane of mortal existence to touch the realm of God and his angels. And God looks and sees this effort from his exalted throne in the heavens. And God came down to see this thing the human race had attempted. No tower built by humans could possibly reach the throne of God, though in their arrogance they had believed it to be possible. So God stoops down to see this thing that they had done and says, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is not the first time in Genesis we have read of the tendency of the human race to choose for themselves what they believe to be good or evil. Adam and Eve transgressed God's word to them to take and eat of the tree he told them not to eat. Cain murdered his brother in envy, rejecting the call to be his brother's keeper. Lamech boasted that he had killed a man for wounding him, that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The tendency of the hearts of all people was toward violence, begetting violence, with no end in sight. They would not abide by God's word, but choose for themselves what is right or wrong. And so it is no wonder that God looks and sees his effort in this tower, this tower of Babel, the plot of this people who over and over again reject the reign of God, and he condemns it. With primordial humanity's ignorance of God and tendency to murder one another, what would be the outcome of all people living in one city than the further corruption of their souls, to abandon the good things they were created for, to live forever not in a pleasant garden walking with God, but in a brick-built monstrosity where blood will flow constantly into the gutter. God wills for those 
who he made in his image, to fill the earth and have dominion over it, to form it into something beautiful, to draw their sustenance from its goodness, to rejoice in all that he has made. But the tendency of a corrupt nature is to build ourselves up, to reject the limitations of our creatureliness, to forget our dependence on our maker, and to make gods of ourselves. So God confuses the languages of the people and disperses them over the face of the earth. Now this story is a little confusing to me because that desire to be at peace with my neighbors and to be close to God is imprinted on my heart and soul and mind. It is a sadness. There are so many people I will never see or meet or know. And it's sad because God's image is in them and they have something wonderful to give. And I have something wonderful to give them too. And together, surely we could dwell in some common life which touches the perfect heavenly fellowship of the blessed Trinity. But as that primal technology of brick making unlocked for ancient humanity the ability to imprison themselves in some festering colossal city, we now have gunpowder and steel and microchips that have allowed us to eradicate those neighbors with whom we find it too hard to make peace. And now we can do so with a terrifying efficiency. The era of like, regional and later global political unity through senates, lords, monarchs, and emperors held the promise, in some ways, of a more peaceful and prosperous world. But peeling back the veneer, historians typically will show us the rampant injustices and abuses which accompanied such regimes, and still do. The ubiquity of instant global communication appears today before us with the hope of gaining once again that universal language and common word between all of us. But we know it isn't enough. It seems God was right to send us on our way and drive us far apart from one another. We cannot be trusted to be our sister's or our brother's keeper. And yet the apostles seem to expect exactly this when they write in the New Testament. Throughout Easter, we have heard readings from the first epistle of St. John, who teaches us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters in the church. He teaches us if we see a sister or brother in need but do not help them, the love of God does not abide in us. Whoever loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this morning, St. Paul reminds us that we are one body of many members with no distinction based on our background, 
ethnicity, social or class status, or anything else, because we have been baptized and born again into the new humanity in Christ. The apostles write about this reality as though it is a fact of life. As though the enmities between Roman and Hebrew are long past, between Greek and Persian, or women and men, or slaves and free people. Yet this era, this New Testament era, is one of an escalating ethnic conflict between the Hebrews in Judah and the Roman Empire, resulting in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And yet the apostolic writers of the New Testament insist that the people of God, now constituted by baptism into Christ, are now living not as the unbelievers in their violence, but now in peace and familial unity. How could this be? Our Savior Jesus Christ loved the unlovely enough to shed his blood to make them clean. He is the King of love who dined with the tax collectors and the sinners, who embraced the lepers and raised the dead. He delivered those afflicted by demons. He fed the ungrateful masses. And on the night before he was betrayed by those, he had called his friends. He said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. It is the case that our Lord has called us to be better than we otherwise might if left to our own devices. He has taught the way of love in his commandments and parables. He has given signs and wonders. He has stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. In all of this, he shows us how to be like him, how to walk in that love which he shares with the Father. But if that was all he did, we would be no better than proud humanity building a big tower, thinking we could get ourselves to heaven. He said, yes, he says you will do greater works than me. But he says, you will do greater works than me because I am going to the Father. We are confronted again with a notion as expected in the apostolic epistles that we ordinary Christians will be capable of a love which defies all our expectations and seems unachievable to us as we are. He then tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Or for Keith, that might be spirit of truth. <laughs> Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But Jesus says, you know him. You know him. He dwells with you. 
and will be in you. This promised helper, the Holy Spirit, will be the one who will give those who belong to Jesus that which by their fallen nature they otherwise cannot have, namely, the love of God as shown in Christ Jesus. But surely he's asking of us something impossible, the keeping of his commandments. If this is the, if this is the condition, we're without hope. Jesus expects that it will be our love for him which will cause us to keep his commandments. And it is remarkable that he would say such a thing on the night that he was betrayed. When all of his disciples will fail to love him. Will fail to stay up and keep watch while he prays. Fail to be with him as he faces an unjust trial. Fail to protect him from the gruesome death upon the cross. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. It is a wonder then how it is that the Holy Spirit is with us today. The glorious resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of our forgiveness and our reconciliation. For if he had not been raised back to life, he could not have come back to his disciples and forgiven them of their sin. And before he is taken up into heaven, he commands his disciples to remain in the city of Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They loved him and they obeyed his commandment. And on that day of what is called in the Old Testament the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost in the New Testament, that, fe that feast marking the harvest of the wheat, on that day the disciples heard the sound of a rushing wind and saw tongues of fire come to rest on each of them. And the disciples went out from that house of hiding to meet the masses from all over the earth who had gathered for the festival. And by the power of the Spirit, each person heard the message of the gospel in their own language. All the peoples of the earth who had been divided by, by their tongues were now hearing of the one Savior of all people told to them in their own language. It was indeed the day of the wheat harvest. And God had sent out his laborers, equipped with everything they needed, to bring in the sheaves of those who are ready to hear the gospel and follow Christ. And it happens here in Jerusalem, the city that God had chosen to make his dwelling. Not Babylon, where humans had defiantly chosen to build their monstrosity. Here, in Zion, God himself mediates between the people, not with words of power, coercion, or control, 
but with the message of forgiveness through Christ. He makes from many people and many languages one people who share in one common word the word of God in Christ. This is the beginning of the new humanity, the one that we often strive for in our own strength and bring about by coercion. God brings about by calling people to repentance and faith. This is the unity of people from every ethnicity and nation that St. Paul mentions in his first epistle to the Corinthians, where he reminds them and us that we have all been baptized into one body and given one spirit. Jesus said that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And he will send a helper to be with us forever. On the face of it, again, it could be no better off than those first disciples. We are being asked to do the impossible, to love Christ and keep his commandments. But the reality is every single one of us has come into the church, which is the new humanity in Christ, through faith and baptism. And each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit because somebody else obeyed Jesus' commandments to make disciples and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. None of us gets the Holy Spirit because we deserved it. We got it because while we were dead in our sins, someone shared that divine word of forgiveness in a tongue that we could understand. And someone brought us to the waters of baptism where we found and drank the water of life. We do not baptize ourselves. Our Christian life begins with an act of obedience to Christ's commandment, but it is an our obedience. We are here because someone before us loved the Lord and kept his commandment to share the gospel with us and to make disciples of us and to baptize us. Like Like that startling sound of rushing wind on that day in Jerusalem, we know something has changed. And we now perceive that all those who belong to Christ are different though now not with the visible sign of a tongue of fire upon their heads, but with the invisible mark of divine love, which has made us sisters and brothers when once we were disparate and divided people. On this great feast of Pentecost that we celebrate today, we give thanks that God has broken down those divisions between us, by giving us a new and everlasting word, the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And we remember today, and we celebrate, that we are united with all those who share that confession. Here in Annapolis, and across the nation, and all over the world, and maybe even beyond the world in the International Space Station, I expect. 
also with our sisters and brothers. We pray again for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that we may go forth in his power to walk in the way of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his glorious name, so that his church may be filled with every tribe and nation and tongue. And ye humanity, which will continue forever in his great love. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.